This is the most focused and intense man I've ever met in my life, who just happens to be the President of the United States. You're listening to Buff Speak, the official podcast of the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. I am Dr. Nick Gerlich, your host, as we meet up with the thought leaders making an impact today. It was not too long ago I sat as an audience member to a panel discussion relating to the needs of online students. Um, of the three panelists, I, I knew one as a colleague here in the College of Business. Uh, a second person was a graduate student with whom I did not know, but the third was a woman whom I recognized. She was familiar, but certainly not in the context in which I had become acquainted many years prior. Yet there she was, now a colleague of mine at WT in education. If I've learned one thing through the years, it is the paths we academics take to reach our positions in higher ed are varied, and some quite a bit more varied than others. My guest today fits that latter description to a T. Today, Shannon Peoples is the Dr. John G. O'Brien Distinguished Chair in Education, but she didn't exactly start out that way. Oh, and along the way, she was chosen the 2015 National Teacher of the Year but we'll get to that later. Shanna, I ran across a Washington Post feature on you. The headline read, a former disc jockey, pet sitter, and journalist becomes teacher of the year. I, I have to ask you, what the heck happened there? Uh, can you give us a little timeline and some backstory? I, I suppose the timeline is, uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just knew I was interested in a bunch of different things. So when I first came to WT, right out of high school, I was a broadcast major, and I thought, you know, I'm going to be Barbara Walters, but that is not how it turned out. And at the time, I was um, working at Z93 in Amarillo as a, as a disc jockey, and so I really did do that, and I liked it, and I moved over into news and did some news, and then I thought, you know... I can be famous here on the radio, and left school. And uh, as often happens when you leave school, you find out um, there's not a lot of jobs out there for somebody with just a high school diploma from Border High School. So that is how I picked up really weird and odd jobs like uh, babysitting pets for rich people in Beverly Hills. And you know, working for an eye surgeon. I've I've done, I used to tell my students, I've comparison shopped so you don't have to. And I can tell you that teaching is one of the best jobs that I've ever had. So did all of this just some, somehow happen organically? And for that matter, um, do you know what you want to be when you grow up? Or are you grown up already? <laughs> <laughs> I still don't know. I think, you know, at heart, I am somebody who's just really curious about things in general. I've always been um, someone who wonders why things are the way that they are. And that has actually served as a really good guide for me as far as incorporating it into teaching or meeting kids where they are or adults where they are and trying to get them to see that their curiosity is a light inside them that's never going to fail them. Now, along the way, you earned degrees at both WT and UT Arlington, and 
by the time you earned your master's degree, you were already teaching at Paldura High School on the north side of Amarillo. What prompted you to look to secondary ed as a career? Mm-hmm. I had the blessing of working with one of the smartest and most creative people that I've ever known, which is Elaine Laughlin. And she and I were already working in the night school program that Paladero used to put on. And when I saw that there was an opening, because back then nobody left those high school jobs. They were hard to get. And there was finally an opening. And I thought, man, if I could work with Elaine all day long, every day, that's where I want to go. And because I had started at Horace Mann Middle School, my students fed into Paladero. So I would still be serving the same group of kids, just a little older. Now, it's no secret around here that Paladero High School is one of the most unique schools in the nation. Uh, depending on which year you happen to be there, there's sometimes more than 25 different languages being spoken there. I, I actually made a presentation there many years ago and was exposed to this, uh, both in, a, uh, in an auditorium setting and then in a classroom setting. And it was uh, it was mind blowing, and and it's because of the high concentration of refugees uh, in that part of Amarillo. What did you teach there, and and what kinds of challenges did you face in that type of environment? Well, I started out teaching. Um, seniors, which uh, was really difficult, much more difficult than the seventh graders that I had started out teaching. And because I was teaching in this night program, we had everyone um, from even the panhandle, from freshman age up through adults. So at night, I would teach all kinds of people. And then in the daytime, I found that I was able to really work with students who, for whom school was just barely a thing for them. Like they had a very tenuous connection to school. And that sort of snowballed in on itself. And because I was working with Elaine, they said, you know, why don't you take these students, these incoming refugee students, and we'll give you this special formation of a class and you and Elaine can team teach it. And that was uh, probably a master class in learning how to teach. And from there, we, you know, I went and made a special class out of students who did not pass tests and were on their last try. And that is where my ego went to die every day because I thought, yeah, you know, Miss Thing, you have done all of this, but have you taught it the 19th, the 20th, and the 21st way? And that's what that group of students who, for whom testing was so difficult taught me. They, they taught me how to meet somebody where they truly were and how to really personalize learning. Now, your, your prior roles as a disc jockey and a journalist, they, they meant that you really were a communicator. You may not have thought of it at the time, but uh, this was something that you really needed to have as a skill as a teacher. Do you think those early jobs helped you transition into education? I would like to think so, Nick. I mean, if we look back, you know, we want to make the story make sense. But yeah, I think that this idea of having to connect with people that that you do uh, in communication was big. But more than that, I have to say I owe it to my dad 
My dad was an oil field supply salesman, and I was his daughter 100%. Only what I was selling was literacy. And I approached it the same way that he did. And, and everything I learned from him about, you know, how to be a great salesperson, that's what I brought over into teaching. Do you ever have any regrets about leaving those former jobs, you know, way back in the cobwebs of your life? <laughs> I only regret leaving the newspaper back when I left it. Certainly, um, the business has changed quite a bit, but being able to pick the phone up and saying, you know, this is Shanna Peoples from the Amarillo Globe News. Do you have five minutes? You can't really do that in any other job. So that's the only part of that I miss. But absolutely, I miss Palladero High School um, all the time. I, I do think that I did some of my best and, and most interesting problem solving and teaching there. Um, but I've been able to bring all of that forward here at WT. So in in some way, I really haven't left. I've just brought that all together in, in a sort of like, I don't know, um, let's, let's say a turducken of how I approach teaching and learning now. Now, how did you connect with these students who came from such diverse cultures and uh, language backgrounds? I mean, did they even know any English at the time? Very little. English. And yeah, it was, um, it was staggering. It, it was almost overnight, literally, that we, we had students from cultures that we had really never dealt with. So Myanmar, for one, and all of the different uh, ethnic groups in Myanmar that don't get along. And in East and South Africa, the same thing. So no, we did not know any of these things. I mean, for example, um, in Somalia, there are two uh, groups of people who have never gotten along, and that's the Bantu and then the ethnic Somali. And we would blithely put them into groups in our classroom, and, you know, in, in seconds, fights would break out and terrible things would happen, and we were like, oh, we can't do that. Um, but one of the things that we realized really quickly is that students walk around, and this is true of all kids, they walk around with these phones in their pockets, and they have access to visual literacy that is probably the most refined of any human being in human history. And we can leverage that visual literacy into textual literacy in other kinds of literacy. It's just helping students know that they already have that facility to read images and help them to bridge that. And that is one of the key insights that we had working with these students is we could start them off on things as seemingly random as saying, how do you know when you go into a room who to sit by? Who do you know who's safe to talk to? And they realized they were reading behaviors. They were reading faces. They were reading body language. And we showed them, like, you didn't come here with nothing. You came here with all kinds of cool stuff. We just have to figure out ways to bridge it into English. Now, how is it that Amarillo, and specifically Paldur High School, became a collector for all these refugees? That is the thing that uh, many people have asked me who are not from here. 
because we have such a robust industry of, um, you know, meat processing and all over the Texas Panhandle, we're able to place folks with limited English into, you know, decent paying jobs pretty quickly. And they are able to, for the first time in their family's lives, have a house and their kids are going to school for free in public schools where they were never able to do that in many of these countries because school is privatized and you have to pay. And so for the parents that came here and realized that we would send a bus to pick their kids up, we would teach their kids, we would, they would have lunch, the bus would take them home, and they didn't have to pay. Well, they made sure those kids were in school every day. And, and the kids themselves, this was such a new world to them that they were very energetically engaged in the learning. And did you find many of them to go off to university after high school? I mean, I, I recall one in particular in one of my classes a few years ago. He was a, a really tall guy from South Sudan. Mm -hmm. And he told me his story coming through Paladura High School and how he had learned English and, you know, his family had all relocated here. And he was he was a rock star in his family. He was going to college. Mm -hmm. Did you see many others do that? Not many, because... For some of them um, that were able to be literate in their first language or who had had schooling, even if it were interrupted schooling in the countries that they came from, those were the students that we could work with. It's the students for whom they were fleeing famine and warfare that you're talking about first attending to the, the traumatized child that you have in front of you. Before you can learn, you know, you have to feel safe. And that was huge. And then the process of trying to learn a new culture and a new language simultaneously when you've never sat in school. And just to give you an illustration of that, one of my students uh, who was a 16-year-old Bantu uh, young lady from Somalia when I taught her to write her name at the top of a paper, that was the first time she'd ever seen her name in print. And she's 16. And there was no written language. There is no written language that she learned. Everything she knew was, was oral. And so students like that, you can get them some survival, like English, some survival reading but you have to really work with their facility with oral language to get them to be successful. And unfortunately, college is something that they can't go into immediately. It may be something that they look at, you know, in a couple of decades rather than a couple of years. What was your childhood like? Did it, did it have any bearing at all on your ultimate role now as an educator? Uh, I absolutely think so. Um, because I come from a home that was really, you know, roiled by addiction and domestic violence and, you know, poverty, all of, all of the things, um, school was my safe space. And teachers were really the people who took me in hand and said, look, we can see past everything that you're coming to school with, and we can see what you can be. And they were the first ones to sort of show me that. 
And no one in my family had really finished high school except my parents and a couple of uncles. So even making it to that point was huge. Um, Sitting here now, it seems incredible that, you know, my grandmother got her GED and my mom was able to uh, get an associate's degree in her like late 40s. But really, I was the first person in my family to get a degree. And I learned that education is your sort of Swiss army knife for approaching the world. It not only gives you more opportunities, it teaches you to think differently, it connects you to people. And I knew I just wanted more of it. You're about six years younger than me, which, you know, realistically means we're both reaching middle age now. (laughs) Um, And if we had a laugh track on this podcast, (laughs) this is where we would insert it right about here. Uh, I read online that following your parents' divorce, you were raised by your very devout grandparents. How did this all affect you growing up and who you are today? I think that consistency is something that my grandmother taught me, and it's something that I was able to take into working with many students who were facing trauma. We didn't know at that time what trauma-informed teaching was. That, that came later. I just knew that for me, one of the things that my grandmother did was sort of um, made sure that there was predictability in the day. And that's something that I carried forward. And, you know, the way that I used to tell it to the, the faculty when I was department chair was, you know, we have to hold their hearts so they can free their minds. Like that has to be done first. It's Maslow's before Bloom's all the time because Maslow will eat Bloom's for lunch. Now, some people might be inclined to say that we are the product of our upbringing um, as well as the totality of all of our life experiences, and and I don't have any problem with that. Knowing that there's also a random variable or two in there as well, you know, lots of things happen unexpectedly. Do you think that you chose education or did education choose you? Yeah, that's a great question. I I think it's a little of both. Um, I do feel uh, from way back, my, my family tells stories about me taking the cigar stand uh, that my grandpa used for his pipes and using it as a pulpit to preach and uh, making the children in the neighborhood attend my sermons. So, you know, did it choose me way back then? I don't know. Something did. Something that said, you know, bend people to your will through the things that you say somehow was implanted early. And is this now your purpose in life? or I mean, or is there some unknown occupation lurking in the precursors of tomorrow. I mean, after all, you're only (laughs) (laughs) middle-aged. That's right. That's right. We have our whole lives ahead of us, Nick. Um, No, I I absolutely feel that this is the purpose. I mean, when I really boil it down to what is it that I'm trying to do, I think that in whatever way that I can, I'm trying to leave the world a better place than I, it was when I was here and try to pay back to all of those people who paid into me and 
to show people that, you know, words words have power and education has power. It is access, it is security, it is connection. And yeah, I if, if I had to put it, you know, into a purpose statement, I would suppose that would work. And, and what do you want your students to say your legacy was in the classroom? And you can pick here at WT or back at Paladura High School. I would hope that they would say that I helped them find uh, the intellectual power that was already inside them and that I pointed to where they might go with all of the things that, that they had, all of the gifts inside of them. Why is it so hard for schools to fill open positions these days? I mean, I see billboards around the country, and I've read of them like in even in like Phoenix and Tucson, uh, trying to attract teachers to go to Dallas, to the Dallas Independent School District. Some of the better-funded school districts are trying desperately, waving money, mm-hmm. large sums of money, like starting salaries in the high 60s, which is mm-hmm. pretty good uh, in public schools. Why do you suppose they're having such difficulty getting people to teach? That is a $64,000 question right there. I think there there and this is, you know, this is my opinion mixed with some research that's been done, but for one thing, I think, you know, this is just our cultural way of addressing a problem. We think, well, we'll use this blunt object uh, of money and that will fix it. We will buy ourselves some sort of solution. But that's not the type of work that teaching is. Would money be better? Yeah, we would love more money. That is, you know, people were doing this for a lot less (laughs) for years. I think that it gets at the conditions that we're asking folks to work in. And, And I would broaden that to administrators because administrators are leaving as well. It, it is, I mean, superintendencies are turning over at a, the fastest rate we've ever seen them. We are having trouble keeping principals in the building. Um, I, I can't tell you how many of these stories that I hear. And I think it comes back to the working conditions. And teaching itself, for any of us that have ever done it, we know that there is this invisible, what the sociologist Arlie Hochschild has called emotional labor. There's a lot of emotional labor in teaching, and it's exhausting. It's really difficult labor. And how do you monetize that? You know, how do you measure that? How do you say anything about that? You can't really. Um, So I think it's incumbent upon us to talk with teachers and create these solutions going forward that are workable as far as addressing the conditions where they work, the amount of say they have in their workday, and what happens. And I think also we have to get really much, much better at engaging the community and bringing the community in as real, true partners in the work of education because it's only getting more complex and difficult. And, and I can see the workplace being uh, a risky place to be, not just because of the difficulties of teaching and all that, but, I mean, how many school shootings have we 
had to read about in the news. And then and then you've got the other things, the politicized things like book bannings mm-hmm. and you can talk about this but you can't talk about that mm-hmm. and I can understand why people mm-hmm. would just throw up their hands and say I think I'd rather have a 52 week a year job. Yeah. Yeah. And some of that is because I mean they're Let's let's err on the good faith actor side of this. I think there is a good faith uh, conversation to be had with parents who who have felt like they really didn't have a say in what was going on. So I can I can certainly be empathetic to that on the parent side or even the community side. Um, but I you know we have to have a vehicle to to engage those folks. I think on the bad faith side of this, you have an organized campaign that's found out that teachers are easy targets and you can make a lot of easy, cheap political points off of targeting teachers and and principals and superintendents. They realize, oh, this is the government that we can show up and yell at um, at school board meetings. And we can film ourselves doing it and put it out on Facebook and we can get clout and attention and even fundraise off of that. So I think that's the bad faith actor side. For for those of us who really care about children and public schools and, and our communities, I think we have to find and engage with the folks who are willing to have those good faith conversations and try as much as possible to tune out those bad faith ones. Now, in your position here at WT, you teach those who are enrolled in the EDD program, Doctor in Education, uh, specifically in administration and leadership. What all does this entail, and how is this program crafted specifically for panhandle needs? Mm-hmm. Oh, all good questions. Um, first of all, I think you you look at why would you need a doctorate in education? And I think there are many reasons. One is, again, this job only gets more complex. Just the systems work that needs to be done. The ability to think at that level um, is difficult. It it is very hard. I think um, the doctoral um, program gets you thinking about different forms of leadership uh, different forms of decision making. It approaches it as a science. Um, it helps you to read and study case studies, um, so you can sort of see those mistakes made before you have to go out and and live them in the spotlight of of a leadership position. Um, as far as it being crafted specifically for what we're doing, we're trying to create this online program that in three years allows folks to both get this very rigorous training while also still working at home. That is a tall order and it's very difficult. And did if we did not have the folks who are so committed in our doctoral core faculty, I don't know that we could do it. Um, because yes, it's a fully online program. But anyone who's ever taken online programs knows that uh, those are sometimes harder. You have to be a lot more organized and focused than you are in just face-to-face classes. So we've really designed it for that. Um, we do a lot of support with our students, supporting them through this this process. And we've graduated now two cohorts of students 
And I think they're really our best um, proof of concept. You know, when you, you talk to them, they it changed how they looked at and thought about the work that they do. As far as like addressing the panhandle, I mean, we have 62 school districts. So it's not like something that you can say, oh, this is crafted just to supply leadership for 62 districts, although that would be nice. I think it's it uses the idea of the way the panhandle stands in for many rural areas as almost a lab of the way that we look at what are the special needs of rural communities and how do we prepare leaders to go into those rural communities and be like the hub of that community, to be the most important, really political person in the community, the person who's responsible for the economic development in many ways of the town because the school is the biggest employer usually and it's the biggest draw for business and um, folks who are moving to that community. So a lot of what we do, we're helping students to position themselves as that for rural communities. After the break, we'll take a look at what it means to reach the highest honor of teaching in the U.S. The MBA is the most popular graduate degree in the United States and with good reason. It leads to better jobs, promotions, and salary increases. At the Paul and Virginia Engler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, our MBA program is entirely online for when you're ready to make that move. With as few as 31 credit hours and specializations offered in five areas, you can fast track your career in as little as 18 months. Whether you're looking for a promotion or initial job placement, you'll stand head and shoulders above the competition. And because we've been teaching online since 1997, we're not the new kids on the block. Trust your education and career to dedicated faculty who are not only experts in their fields, but also old pros in the online arena. Our consistently high rankings say it all. A GMAT waiver is available. We're AACSB accredited and among the most elite of business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with a WT MBA in hand. For more information, find us at wtamu.edu slash cob or call 806-651-2500. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we're here to help you reach those stars. Shanna, you are perhaps the most storied educator in these parts. Um, you were Region 16, State and National Teacher of the Year in 2015. And for those of us who cannot begin to comprehend such accolades, how did this all happen and what does it mean? And well, walk us through that magical year. <laughs> um, it's it it was uh, lived at probably three hundred miles an hour, so it's it's kind of a blur. Um, you know, it starts with the people that you work with on your campus, and that's really the highest praise because they're the people who really know you. They've really worked with you. They've seen what you really do, and they know your students. So to be Paladuros. Teacher of the Year was probably the most um, touching, the most meaningful award to me because that's coming from the people who knew me. And even, you know, Amarillo, City of Amarillo Teacher of the Year, again, these are, these are folks who knew me for 15 years. And so it says, it, it says a lot about 
the relationships that you make. As far as going forward, it becomes a successive series of higher and higher stakes interviews with huge panels of people, uh, writing and, you know, speaking and all of this. One of my former um, national teacher advisors said this to me, and I think this is it in a nutshell. He said to be a finalist for national teacher, you win a writing contest. And to win national teacher of the year, you win a speaking contest. And I would agree with that because by the end of it, you're in Washington, D.C. with four people that they've pulled from each state and territories teacher of the year, which can sometimes be 55 people. They've pulled four people who represent 7 million teachers in public and charter schools. Um, and this is the person who goes forward to be an ambassador of U.S. education and speak, you know, on behalf of people are always like, oh, that's like a blue ribbon at the fair. You know, you you got teacher of the year. Yay, you. It's because you were so great. No, you were the person who was willing to step forward and and sort of be intense PR and ambassadorship for education for a year. And then you received your award from President Barack Obama. I, I, I can't even begin to imagine what that was like. I mean, here I am sitting across from a woman who met the president of the United States and you know, forget all that Kevin Bacon and six degrees of separation nonsense. And I know I may have said it a little differently in a previous conversation <laughs> with you, but we'll let the listeners imagine how that unfolded. I've got one degree right now between me and a president. How does this make you feel? I mean, I know how it makes me feel. I, you know, still, Nick, it's so surreal to me. I have the photos in fact, you can go and look at the video, and I think, wow, there's a woman who looks and sounds just like me, uh, but I, it's hard for me to connect with that person. And I think that's because I was so focused and took that role so seriously that all I could think of was, do not mess this up. <laughs> what exactly do you say to a president without, you know, like... Sounded like a bumbling idiot, because mm. I know I would. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I can't even tell you how I sort of strategized my approach, and I would love to say it was me, but it's his facility um, with people. He's extremely skilled at connecting with people um, super fast, which anyone that gets to that level is somebody who can immediately connect with somebody. He has a supernatural ability to focus and listen to what you're saying and come back to, even if he's interrupted, come back to the exact point where you left off speaking with him. I, I just, I've never met anybody like that. And so in many ways, whatever I said, it didn't matter. He made it seem like it was the most interesting thing in the world. And I think, you know, that's his superpower. What duties did you have during your tenure as Teacher of the Year? I, you know, tangentially, you're supposed to sort of show up and, and go to the places where people ask you. And I thought, okay. And they said, you can expect about 156 of those engagements. And I was like, oh, goodness, that was a lot. What it turned out to be is 
international travel on top of that. And I stopped counting the miles at 300,000 miles that I had traveled according to my little travel app. And I, you know, went the first place that I went was the Middle East. That that was the first international venue that asked me to be there um, in Lebanon, Beirut, Lebanon, uh, wanted me to come and talk about handling traumatized uh, children, particularly refugee children, because of Syria and the war that was going on in Syria and still is, and those children that were streaming over the border as refugees into Lebanon. So um, I found that the ability to do the things that we were doing in North Amarillo with our students translated to places all over the world um, from, you know, UN refugee camps in Ramallah to um, village schools in the Andean Mountains in Peru to uh, rural China and Beijing. I mean, in Tel Aviv, we I went and talked about the, my students and encourage teachers to see everything that was right with their students rather than to see them as, oh man, this is a problem. I got to, oh, they can't do this or they can't do that. But rather to see them as coming with so much cultural wealth and ability. And it was just, you know, the task for us was to help them to find where that connected. Now, one of the things you did was write a book as many honorable award winners do. Uh, in 2018, think like Socrates using questions to invite wonder and empathy in the classroom, grades 4 through 12, that's a mouthful, <laughs> was released. Um, how did you introduce the Socratic method to these grades? Mm -hmm. that, that was something that was co-created with the brilliant faculty that I worked with and my students. So we decided to study, you know, what is something that we're not doing really well as a, as a group of teachers. And we realized that what we were thinking was discussion was really just lectures. I mean, we actually videotaped ourselves, you know, teaching, and, so to speak. And it was just lecturing. And we saw how tuned out our students was that were. So we thought, okay, how can we do a better job? engaging students in real discussion. And in working with each other and in working with students, we hit upon this modified Socratic method um, where we made it sort of like a team sport. And we modified this arrangement called Socratic circles. And in the book, it breaks it down to like exactly how we did this, the protocol and all of that. But it allowed students to choose the role that they wanted to take on. And it let them play to their strengths up to the point of someone whose job it was to just stand at my whiteboard and, com you know, compose tweetables or takeaways of these pithy things that they heard in the discussion. And that is a, you know, that's a skill being able to summarize at that level and um, having people who coached the speakers on the inside of the circle and people who um, paid attention to the way sources were being used and how arguments were being made down to uh, someone whose job it was to was to see who was speaking the most 
and who was never speaking. So students would get like real-time feedback in either you're dominating or you're not talking at all. So it was this really, it was almost like sports. It was almost like playing a game and it was extremely engaging for students. And they kept giving us feedback on it and we kept iterating that based on their feedback until it became this very powerful way for them to to take on some really difficult topics. And do you use that method in your doctoral classes today? Oh, I wish I could. It's it's a little bit harder to do that online simply because we don't have the time that I had in public school to do that. I mean, and we had no time in public school either, but I had students every day. And in the online class, so much of what you're able to do when you gather folks for an in-person course is you're wanting them to have discussions, but to, to run it like that particular thing is a little bit more difficult. Now, do I try to create a lot of offline connections and a lot of offline ways for them to keep wrestling with material? Absolutely. But yeah, that particular method it, it's it's intensive. It takes time. Um, but there are pieces of it, yes, that I still use. What kinds of advice can you give to educators today? I mean, it doesn't matter if they are uh, national award winning caliber. We just need people to, you know, work in the trenches. Mm-hmm. Well, and I again, I think it is the trenches. It's the trenches of, of emotional labor. It's the it's the trenches of intellectual labors. It's exhausting if you can. I mean, they've done research on how many decisions a teacher makes in a day. And, you know, it's well over a thousand separate decisions that they make in a day to day. To day. So, yeah, it's exhausting. It is the trenches. Um, you know, I think that my advice, my deepest advice here would be to um, something that I always said to my faculty long about this time when we were exhausted, I would say, you know, go to the deep magic. What is it that brings you joy? You have to find that joy in yourself so you can keep doing the work. And for me, the deep joy, the deep magic was reading and writing for real Um, and getting back to the whole reason that I wanted to be an English teacher I think that's one. Two is you can't do it by yourself. You just can't. It is critical that you have um, a teaching partner, and that person may not even be on your campus. It may be somebody that you see from a different campus or somebody even that you're connected to on social media that you Zoom with. I think you have to have a co-collaborator with you that helps you see the things you can't see, which is the stuff that you are doing well and who who knows you well enough to give you, you know, some kind nudges in the direction of taking better care of yourself. Now, after you won the award and basked in that glow and traveled hundreds of thousands of miles, you went off to Harvard for your PhD. And I've heard many people try to rationalize their university's existence as being like, you know, the Harvard of the Midwest or... We're the Harvard of the High Plains, right, I guess. But <laughs> you went to the Harvard of the Harvard, you know, the, the real deal. I was fortunate enough to just get to go there for a couple weeks once many years ago for a, a certificate program. And it was nothing short of amazing. But 
my recollections are short. Actually, the thing I remember the most is that, well, I remember where I was when I heard that Michael Jackson died. Um, I did learn a few other mm. things, though, while I was there. Um, what was it like going to the pinnacle of higher ed in America? Mm. There's there's so much I could say about that. Um, I knew it was going to be hard. I didn't know that it wouldn't necessarily be so much an intellectual challenge as it would be an interpersonal challenge for me. Um, I would say that the experience poured miracle grow on my flaws uh, and my growth and um, helped me to tolerate high levels of discomfort. Um, so I would say, you know, Harvard definitely has an expectation about the people that go there and they don't, you know, extend a lot of helping hands with things. They're, they're great about supporting your learning experiences, but it is very difficult. I went there alone. I had to leave my family um, because it's expensive and somebody had to pay the bills. So when I went off, I went by myself and, and lived in this little um, monk cell of a dorm room where me and another man were the oldest people on the floor and kids knocked on my door at all hours of the day and night saying, do you, do you have Tide Pods? Uh, do you have a Band-Aid? Um, can you tell me what this is in my eye? <laughs> you know, and, and so in, in many ways, I didn't escape being a mom, even at Harvard. But it is really, it's like Harry Potter in the way that it looks and the way that, you know, you're grouped into the colleges. Instead of Ravenclaw, you know, I was the Graduate School of Education. Um, and I think that it is the Alibaba's cave of like intellectual uh, great things, intellectual treasures. And it, it's, it's mind blowing uh, when you see what Harvard has access to. And, and Boston? Wow. I mean, I can't imagine a more fertile ground for higher ed. There's more than 70 universities there. And Harvard's location along the Charles River is priceless. Uh, it's, you know, it's a place to reflect as the rowing crews go by in their relentless training. And f for me, just seeing that all those years ago, it was almost like a metaphor of education in itself to see that dedication to the task. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and because uh, one of my colleagues in my cohort was a former uh, crew member, he said, you know, it's the nerdiest endurance sport that there is. And it, it really helped me to appreciate it. Yeah, it was, it was a very um, arduous type of sport to watch, but cool. And that's when you would feel like, wow, these are the things I saw on TV. And this is the buildings I saw in movies. Uh, and I'm walking around in this. What did you bring back from that experience? I tried to bring back as many things as I could to help other people um, because it was so life-changing for me. The learning was, you know, they have an ability at Harvard to take risks that most of us can't do. And so there were some very uh, interesting, risky, pedagogical things that I took from my time there and thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a way 
to bring those into the program. And you asked me earlier, did I incorporate anything from my Socratic circles and stuff that I did with kids? Not nearly as much as I tried to take everything that I learned that was a a foundational type of learning experience for me and recreate it in some form or fashion for my doctoral students. And somehow you found yourself, just like a Velcro strip that just won't let go, returning to the panhandle. Here you are today, Mm -hmm. right back more or less where you started, but all the better for the wear. How do you describe the 2023 Shanna (laughs) versus the one from a decade or more ago? Mm. I would say that I feel a lot more authentic the 2023 Shanna is a lot more authentic uh, than the 2013 Shanna. Um, and I also think that, you know, it's it's sort of a truism what I've been saying to younger folks that I've worked with. You know, what makes you different is what makes you great. And sometimes that's hard when you grow up in an area where there's a lot of pressure to conform and be like everybody else because it seems like the right thing to do. And in many ways you can be successful, but to level up, you really have to embrace those things about yourself that are not in the norm that are different. And to realize that that is your special sauce. After the break, we'll take a look at one of Shanna's responsibilities in her job as well as the future of education here in the Panhandle. Blogs come in all shapes and sizes these days, and in more cases than not, it's just someone complaining about something. Rare Indeed is the blog that actually dives into the business and economics events of the day. Profspeak.com, the official blog of the Paul and Virginia Engler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, is just that. With a staff of seasoned and knowledgeable professors who write a new installment each week, it's not over the top like the others. It's on top of things. We'll look for you down at the corner of thought leadership and societal impact. Check it out at profspeak.com and stay on top too. Reach for the stars and do it with a WT business degree in hand. For more info, find us at wtmu.edu cob or call 806-651-2500. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we're here to help you reach those stars. Among the many things you do, you are director of the Route 66 Writing Project. What is this all about? The Route 66 Writing Project is the university's national writing project site. And so there are sites all over the United States where a university houses um, what they call a writing project, which is really a way to encourage teachers and, you know, at, at any level to do the research, action research, their own writing, sort of to reconnect with the the intellectual power inside of them as teachers and learners and figure out interesting new ways to have their students engage with literacy and particularly writing as a way of learning. Why is this important for the panhandle? One of the things I think that we overlook, and certainly, okay, this is me talking about me here, Even being native to this area, lifelong, um, I don't know that I knew much about this area. 
beyond the things, you know, the sort of very shallow surface level stuff you learn in seventh grade. And now that I've come back from being away, you know, it's like I see it with new eyes. And what I see is a lot of interesting opportunities for us to do place-based learning. So for me, the Route 66 Writing Project is trying to engage students across the Panhandle and even the Southwest with thinking about our area first in place consciousness. Like, what do we have here? Do we even know? What are our questions about why things are placed the way they are or why things work the way they do? Or how did this come about? Who was here before us and how do we know? But but basically taking students' curiosity and trying to turn that curiosity towards the places that they are and using those questions to access literacy at a much higher level. Now, as a longtime Route 66 historian, I've come to conclude that the Mother Road is a metaphor of our existence on the High Plains. Scarcely 30 years after Amarillo was founded, Route 66 came barreling through town by writ of federal legislation that provided for the numbering of roads. That was in November of 1926, but it was only a few years later that Okies started flowing through in their desperate search for a better tomorrow. And after the war, well, things got better. The economy changed and suddenly people developed a, a wanderlust. They, they had cars and they had the ability to travel. And so they wanted to go out and seek out the unknown. Our love affair continued long after the interstate era ended all of that wistful two-lane highway stuff that we like to romanticize about. And today, nostalgia reigns supreme as people look for a taste of life that somehow managed to get away from us. How do you explain all of that to young writers who might write future chapters of The Mother Road? Mm -hmm. That is, I think, an excellent question. And that's one of the things I want to use as, you know, you you have (laughs) the Mississippi River, for example, for someone like Mark Twain. We have Route 66, that is an asphalt river, so to speak. And getting students to use that as an anchor to think about all all kinds of things. I think you can look at it through all kinds of lenses of even to me, what strikes me, Nick, is, you know, we have um, the Cadillac Ranch that everybody knows, but it which symbolizes the age of the automobile and we have this road but you know not far from the Cadillac Ranch you have the Wilderado Wind Ranch so you have like the past and the future within a couple of miles of each other there and i think that that's one interesting way we can approach that with students is a road allows you to go backwards and forwards and to make connections between past and future and present and I would love for students to think about what are the things that we know from Route 66 that we can bring forward with us? What do we know about the communities that lived here, even who lived way back um, when they were putting petroglyphs and messages to us on rocks? What can we learn from them now that climate 
is very present for us, for example, now, as it was for them. Those are the types of things I'm thinking. Now, is, is this writing project going to get harder as the years pass? I mean, it's, it's not going to be, I hate to say this, not that many years into the future before there will be no living people who were around for when Route 66 actually existed as a <laughs> federal highway. Um, and, and it's already been almost 40 years since it was decommissioned. Is this going to present challenges uh, down the road? I I don't see it that way. I mean, mainly we're just using it um, as branding for so many people who know the road and to, to flip the script on that branding and say, you know it one way. But uh, let's think about, you know, the roads and the places in your town. Let's think about the lore and the um, the mythology that's in your town or your area. For me, it's a great anchor. It's a great hook for that type of geographic inquiry. Now, what stories uh, need to be told? I I can argue quite convincingly that the story of Route 66 is really a white person's story and that we have unequivocally left many voices out of the narrative. Race, ethnicity, uh, Native Americans, all these other people, non-whites, basically everybody else, you don't hear about their side of the story. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I, th- I think you've named it right there. To me, that those are the stories, um, the stories that are harder to find. The people for whom Route 66 gave and the people for whom Route 66 took away. And what does mobility even mean? When you're talking about non-white folks, what what does it mean to to be mobile? Uh, who's allowed to to get in a car and go places? Well, one of the things we have all learned um, in the last couple of years is the the work of Candace Taylor, who has done some amazing research on the Green Book, which was a, an annual directory of businesses that were basically safe for Black customers to go to. Um, I can't begin to imagine what it was like 60 years ago or before that traveling while black. Mm -hmm. And that is definitely something that I have thought about. And looking at the sundown towns, for example, that come out of Oklahoma City, between Oklahoma City and and Amarillo, the the ones that um, historians have found had some problematic histories, some hard histories. So yeah, in, in that just that journey through the Green Book, why was Amarillo there? It's because Amarillo was an oasis of safety. And then you had between here and Albuquerque, miles and miles of nothing, uh, scary nothing, that if you were to break down um, or if you needed emergency services, you're going to be hard-pressed to find anything between Amarillo and Albuquerque on a good day. Route 66 will mark its 100th anniversary in 2026, and there are many efforts afoot locally uh, to turn this into a festival of culture as well as nostalgia. And yet, when I talk to my students today in, in, in my classroom, yeah, most of them saw the Cars movie when it came out in 2006, but they still have no idea what this old road is about. How do we correct this? Mm-hmm. I think it's by getting uh, 
the students to think about, you know, getting them to ask questions about this area and about this road and what this road has meant. You know, what? why would you have a road from Chicago to L.A.? Why was it a pop? Why is it seen as a pop culture thing for many people our age? What, you know, what's the big deal about that? And even getting them to start asking those questions helps them to think about, I think, these bigger ideas that we talked about, the, the lenses of, you know, race, identity, community, mobility, climate, climate migration. One of the challenges I see in, in all of this, in this project, and I guess in education in general here, is what I call the, the, the panhandle diaspora, the inexorable leaving of the panhandle by so many people, specifically young people. Um, how do we capture their stories before they leave? And is there any way to interrupt this exodus? That's what my personal research um, is. One of the big questions that I have is back to your idea of story. What are the stories that we're telling young people about elsewhere? You know, why is elsewhere so compelling? And now that technology is flattening things at a pace that it's hard for us to process, is it necessary? Is elsewhere necessary in the age of the internet? And then turn back to what is it that we do have that could keep you here? And is it possible to do this sort of pendular migration, pendular journey where you go and come back and you go and you come back and that we are the place where you have roots but you can also have wings and that you know for me personally that's what it's been you said it was like velcro and i love that description but it's it's also because you know i'm i'm a sixth generation texan and my roots really are deep here in a way that I can't find anywhere else. And that is becoming increasingly important when we're looking at the rates of loneliness and disconnection that technology is also bringing. Last thing, Shanna, you're an educator with accolades the rest of us can only dream of achieving. Uh, What words of advice do you have for those of us occupying the common ground of education? Um, <laughs> okay. You, you really make me sound, um, fancy, Nick. Um, I think at the end of the day, it's really back to that idea of, you know, what is the deep magic of learning in your field and how can you transmit that deep magic to the students that, you know, you love and serve that, I think is our work. Our our work is to build the future now. That's sort of a cliche, but we build the future with every single conversation, every single assignment, every single office hours. That is how you build the future. Our guest today has been Shanna Peoples, the 2015 National Teacher of the Year. Give us your best shot, Shanna. My best shot. Uh <laughs> You, here's my deepest leadership learning. You have to, in the words of Ron Heifetz, learn how to disappoint people at a rate that they can absorb. You've 
You've been listening to Buff Speak from the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. Our executive producer is Justin Lovell, and Allison Hunter is our associate producer. Our co-editors are Maverick Evans and Paul Torres. Lindsay Bjork is our director of marketing and outreach initiatives, which includes overseeing Buff Speak. Dr. Jeffrey Babb is director of accreditation and is our technical consultant. Finally, Dr. Amjad Abdullah is dean of the college. You can find us online at wtamu.edu slash cob for more information about our programs. Be sure to check out our many academic offerings. Come for the quality, stay for the small classes, affordable tuition, and friendly approachable professors. And look online at our faculty blog, profspeak.com, for more insights. You can listen to BuffSpeak on your favorite podcast portal, as well as on our website, buffspeak.biz. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't be afraid to share us with your friends, colleagues, and family. Word of mouth has always been the best form of advertising. Until next time, love one another. For the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas a and University, I am Dr. Nick Gerlich. And as always, go Buffs! Buff Speak.